I'm Chad. And I'm Cheese. And we are the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Our podcast covers news, startups, AI, automation, programmatic, and all the things the kids are excited about. (laughs) And then we drown it with a healthy dose of snark, attitude, and four-letter words. Subscribe to the Chad and Cheese Podcast today, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you were to try and reverse engineer our concept of professional culture based purely on going to different career sites around the globe, you would have a very interesting concept of what culture truly is. That it is, in fact, whether they have offices or not, whether they play beer pong or not, what kind of laptops they have, do they have the cold brew, are they getting free lunch? You'd really think culture is a bunch of perks, and it's not. And that has not been any, made any more clear than what we're seeing right now in the midst of the pandemic. Now that everything is topsy-turvy, what the heck is going on with our culture? And if we think culture is perks, or worse yet, we equate culture with brand or values, which none of those things are the same, how do we present who our brand is, who our culture is, who our values are in the wake of all this stuff? And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to get pretty seriously deep on culture. Welcome to the TalentCast, the world's most caffeinated employer brand podcast. I'm your host, James Ellis, and I've been doing employer brand for years now, and I absolutely love the industry. I love how it's growing. I love how it's changing, and I've tried to do my part to elevate the concept, to get everybody to understand the power employer brand can have in hiring, attracting, and retaining talent. So we try to really focus on driving home the idea that this is a calling and a craft. It's a lot of getting your hands dirty, but it's also a lot of big strategic thinking. And that's where we kind of live, that kind of uh, Venn diagram, the intersection between those the big ideas and the getting the details right. So we talk a lot about employer brand and how to do it right and how to think about it and how to look at your problems in a whole new way. Ready to rock? One, two, three, let's go. Hey, hey, don't James Ellis, recording live from Chicago. Uh, do me a favor and go sign up for my newsletter. If you have not already, go to employerbrand.news. It is a free, no-pitch, weekly, Monday morning, hey, here's what's going on in the world of employer branding. Stay sharp, stay smart, you know, kind of keep up to date super, super fast. That's really what it's all about. That's employerbrand.news. Otherwise, go ahead and grab 15 minutes. Uh, get my office hours. Ask me anything. Ask me a question. Show me some work. Ask me, your, ask me my opinion. I don't know. What could be useful to you? Uh, links in the show notes. Go grab that. Anyway. Uh, oh, one last thing. Uh, since this is going on a Monday, and if you're listening to this on Monday, tomorrow, I'm going to be part of Hung Lee's Brain, Fruit, Brain Food Marathon, which is an absolutely insane idea to even attempt, let alone ex, you know achieve. So I think he's on the right path. He is putting together 24 hours of live interviews, on-the-spot interviews, a true marathon of recruiting, employer brand, all the stuff that you know we hold dear. Uh, it, it, and if you honestly, if you're not listening or watching uh, or even reading recruiting brain food, I'm not sure what you're waiting for. It's absolutely must read every Sunday morning. Uh, I'm going to be on it. So at some point, uh, I know he's still working on scheduling. He's shuffling a lot of different people. <laughs> The list I've seen so far is pretty insane, uh, but I'm on it. So if, honestly, don't listen to me. Go listen. All the other people are going to be there. So um, you know, there. Consider me your uh, uh, kind of a pause, kind of the 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 sip of wine between meals, uh, something separate, something to cleanse the palate. How about that? So go ahead and and, and go to. I think it's brainfoodmarathon.com. I'll put the the link in the show notes. So let's talk about culture. 
right? Um, I, we, we talk about culture wrong. And I know we've talked about culture as a concept on this podcast about two years ago, uh, maybe a little less then, but it bears revisiting it. Really, um, I'm going to start off with uh, definitions. And I think that's... <laughs> I don't understand why we hate starting with definitions, except when it's so obvious what the thing is. I'm going to define football. Well, I guess in the case of British versus American, there's a a valid need to define that, but really we all know what football is, and let's just go forward. People think they know what employer brand is, people think they know what strategy is, but people think they know what culture is, and nine times out of ten, maybe not they're wrong, but they certainly aren't completely correct, and you have to be careful. And if everybody shows up with very different interpretations of the definition of what culture means and you start talking about culture, we're not going to get anywhere very fast. In fact, we're going to get exactly nowhere, let alone maybe even take a step or two back as we get angry at each other because we simply refuse to listen because we did not define stuff. So Allow me to define stuff so that when you understand when I talk about this stuff, this is what I mean by culture. Because culture is a far longer list of what it isn't than what it is. So culture is what happens when you put more than two people in a room together. Now, a lot of quibble that now these days, putting anything in a room like that is is tough to do. I just simply mean a virtual room, a space, an interaction space, whether that's physical or virtual, doesn't matter. It is what happens when you put two or more than two people in a space and expect them to interact, right? If this was three people in solitary confinement, there's no culture really. There's culture is mandated on them, culture is thrown at them, but really there's not much culture per se. There's no interaction between them. Culture is not as we suggested at the beginning of this, perks. It's not the foosball table, it's not the cold brew, it's not the beer, it's not the, 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 the free lunches and the free stuff and the swag and all the cool stuff you get. If culture is not perks. What you can do is use a perk to suggest a culture to encourage an outcome you like, but culture and perks are not the same. Also, culture is not, is not what leadership, leadership tells you it is. You cannot dictate a culture. Trust me, there are many, 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 many. In fact, most CEOs will tell you the first thing they tried to do when they entered a company is to try, especially in a company that's having problems, is to change the culture. And most of the times they don't do that if they're honest with themselves. They talk a good game, they make announce a couple of new policies, a couple of new changes, and they hope that that changes the culture. But most of the times it does not. And that is sad and painful and you think about how much you paid those people to to fix something and the one thing they started by fixing they couldn't even do that right yikes but it, it, to be fair culture is complicated it's very messy it is very hard i mean frankly we we still are quibbling over my definition and you know there's lots of other definitions we could be quibbling over it it's hard to define it's hard to understand it's hard to grasp and if you can't grab it if you can't grasp it if you can't figure it out how do you change it and what's what we're going to talk about a bit today um because as we understand what culture is and isn't, as we get better at it, if uh, and, and you know there are plenty of articles from the Harvard Business Review types who talk a good game about how to you know what culture is and what culture isn't. Again, they don't do a great job defining it, and for the most part, they frame it in order to make a point. It's not so much about here's how to help you; it's about how do I make a point so I can get my article on Harvard Business Review or Strategy and Business or any number of other places that there's some level of prestige by saying I was published there. They're just there to score the point, and I hate that crap. I hate the point scoring mentality of this stuff. Look, if it's if it's right or wrong, that it can be useful, but don't show up. 
build a straw man argument, knock the straw man over and say, congratulations, I, I, uh, I uh, explained or debunked something. It's like, no, 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 no. If you describe your culture as the foosball table, then yeah, you're going to get debunked left, right, and center because that's a stupid definition. If you think about culture and you talk about culture as, and here's a good example, the thing that makes a decision when no one makes a decision. Let me break that up a little bit. So let's say your company decides you are going to be very, very, very heavily committed to DNI. Pretty standard kind of announcement, pretty standard kind of attempt or policy or process or program or however you frame it. It is a pretty common initiative to say, look, for any number of reasons, uh, DNI is important to us. Okay. The leader who announces that thinks that by virtue of having authority and dictating that this thing is important to us, what that leader is really saying is this thing is important to me, not us. Those are different things. Very, 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 very different things. So when the leader says DNI is important to us, meaning me, and nothing changes internally, because no one decided, ah, since our new culture is DNI centric or thinking in terms of DNI or, or expanding our, our views of who we bring into the company, ah, I will make some changes because our culture has changed. That's never how that works, <laughs> right? If the leader says we care about DNI and no new diverse people show up, it's because everybody made a quiet, tacit decision to not follow along, and therefore the culture, i.e., when no one makes a decision, it just kind of doesn't happen, that's the culture. The culture is very un-DNI friendly. The culture is very about, hey, fit match, um, and hire for fit, and which means same old, same old, and cloning and all that good stuff. It's not changing the culture. If the leadership says, we are going to be far more collaborative, and I have just invested in this massively expensive collaboration tool that's virtual, you can use it anywhere, and I expect everyone to use it. And in fact, I will be measuring who uses it, and when they use it, and how often they use it. And I have some expectations of how people will use it. Will introducing a tool make people more collaborative? for like a hot minute and then maybe, maybe not, right? The right tool with the right uh, push behind it, with the right reasons why, if you are solving the right problem with the right solution, yes, you can get some adoption. Does that make people more collaborative? <sighs> Does it? Just because I'm forced to use that tool doesn't mean I like it. It just means, okay, this is the new normal. I'm going to use it. And let's be fair, most people use these tools. We bend them like crazy to suit what we were going to do anyway, right? When your company moves from email to something more chat and Slack-based, people think, ah, oh, amazing productivity bumps. And you're like, no, I'm just going to repurpose email into this thing. And it's going to solve things for a bit, but really I'm back to where I was. All my problems of too much information, where do I, you know, how do I, I'm getting overrun with pings and overrun with, you know, whatever. It didn't change anything. The culture of the company of saying, look, we should respect each other's boundaries and only ping people when we need them and not to do a lot of cover your ass and, hey, I'm going to copy everybody and their dog and the handyman who showed up one day just because I happen to have their email. I'm going to copy them on the email too just in case, right? That's a culture. The culture says everybody understands that you always copy everybody on an email. The culture understands that you have 
Uh, you tr and another culture is we don't write anything down. Showing up in the news, right? Right now, someone's very mad that someone put some predictions and projections of uh, de uh, COVID deaths on paper. And that's the culture is we don't put it on paper so that we don't have to be called to account for it down the road. It's you never put anything on paper. That's a culture. That is, a cult, that is truly what happens when you put people in a room and how they act, how they behave, and how they interact. You can dictate, you can drive, you can nudge, you can influence, but truly no one owns the culture. Everybody owns the culture. Here's what I mean. Okay, three people in a room. They're the three developers, and they're very, very, very blank, right? They're very obsessed with prestige. They're very obsessed with output. They're very obsessed with opportunity. They're very obsessed with individual achievement. They're very obsessed with team achievement. They're very obsessed with something, right? Three people in a room, a trait tends to manifest itself. Look at any sports team, right? Some teams are very, you know, let's go to football. Some uh, teams are very quarterback heavy. Some are very running back heavy. Some are very defense heavy. Some are very balanced. Some are very fast. Some are very slow. Those are kind of cultures that have been built in over time to say, look, when the chips are down, this is what we do. That's a good indication of what your culture is. Yeah, the coach may have said this is the direction we're going, but the coach couldn't just do it. They needed to get all the assistant coaches, all the strength training people, all the the players to say, look, when we approach something, this is how we approach it. They all had to agree on this thing, which means everybody had a hand in the culture. And if some part of the team says, uh-uh, that's stupid, we're not doing that. And by the way, I get the sense that that happens a lot on sports teams, especially big ones like football teams. What you think the culture is and what the culture actually is are different. That's complicated. So if you have three people and they're three developers and they all care about blank and the trait manifests itself, what happens when you bring a fourth person in who is not that? Does the culture change? Yes. That's simply put. You put more people in a room, the culture change. Anybody who's ever dated anybody knows this. Anybody who's ever said, I am this thing, and the second you meet and start to date and have the emotions for someone else who is not exactly like that, you change. That's natural, right? We, in order to work together, in order to, to do our things together, we shift and we adopt and we adapt. Every new person you bring into a company changes the culture slightly less than the person before because there's more people, right? There's a level of uh, inertia in the culture, but every time you add a person, the culture changes. Every time someone leaves, the culture changes. You're now subtracting an element that used to be there which is really interesting because when you think about culture, we have this sense that it's very monolithic. This is a, let's take Facebook because I like kicking around Facebook, but it's really easy, but we all know it. And we all know Facebook's culture is very move fast and break things. Here's a great example of a culture instilled at the very, 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 very beginning of the company. Just go watch the social network. It's, it's all right there. Uh, by the way, amazing movie. It's on Netflix. Go watch it. Watch it many times. I know I have. Um, this idea of move fast and break things was just natural to who he was. It wasn't necessarily a credo. It wasn't necessarily a mission statement. It wasn't even necessarily a culture document that, that Mark decided to write down and say, this is who we are. He simply was that guy. He simply attracted other people who were very similar to that, who were, for the most part, guys for a while. But what have you, there you go. Um, 
they were all about the move fast and break things. And every time they added more people, what happened was someone was attracted to this idea of move fast and break things and showed up and therefore reinforced this idea of move fast and break things. If they hire someone who is not all that in love with move fast and break things, but is incredibly talented and the company said, we need to hire them and bring them in, are they changing the culture? A tiny bit, a tiny bit. But if you have 10,000 employees all focused on move fast and break things, the one person who doesn't goes, yeah, maybe I need to learn how to do that. There is flexibility. It finds a middle. It finds an average. But that also means that over time, the culture evolves. It changes. It shifts. It, it grows as people move in, as people move out, as the, the business objectives change, as the physical environment changes, culture changes. So when we say company X has a culture of Y, what we really mean to say is today and mostly in the very recent past, company X has had a culture of Y. And as more people show up and as more people leave, that culture can evolve and shift. And then, of course, what happens when a pandemic shows up and everybody has to kind of go home for a while, whether for short-term or long-term or work from home or whatever that is, the culture shifts. You can't say that with all these changes that the culture has to be the same or can be the same. If the culture is based upon, and let's be fair, we learn the culture by what we see and interpret. If I show up to Facebook and I know nothing about it, if I'm some sort of alien who shows up and Facebook goes, you know what, we need aliens to help us sell ads, and they hire me, because I'm an alien who knows about ads apparently, I will very quickly realize this is a move fast and break things kind of thing because I'm going to hear it, I'm going to see it, people are going to do it, people are going to reference it, people are going to do that thing. Go look at Amazon. They have codified these ideas, these leadership principles. They're famous. You just Google Amazon leadership principles and there they are. They are lived by every leader. They are lived by almost all the employees. They hire for it. They recruit against it. They live by that thing. Now, those things didn't come from space they were something that emerged from how Jeff and his team originally kind of grew, right? You know, you hear the stories about any meeting that you can't be fed by two pizzas, uh, they need more than two pizzas to feed is too big a meeting, right? These kind of rules of thumb were slowly over time codified. Now what happens is that codification tends to attract more of the same, right? They're, if they're recruiting against it, if they're hiring against it, therefore they're reinforcing it. And that is an intentionality. So you can slowly shift culture, but you can't dictate. Jeff can't say one day, I woke up, uh, I hit my head, I saw some stuff, I, you know, you know what we're going to do? What we're going to do is focus on making the best sweaters ever. Now, you and I know as listeners, I always go to the sweater reference. I don't know why the sweaters, but there it is. It just seems like this completely, hey, and, it's, and Jeff says, we're not just going to make and sell sweaters. We're going to make the world's greatest sweaters. We're going to make sweaters to to put jumpers on the world, as it were, if you were British. Um, we're going to make the world's greatest sweaters. We're going to leverage our abilities, our, our connections, our resources to, to find vendors to supply us with the best thread, with the best machines, with the best patterns, with the best designs. We're going to rethink what a sweater is. We're going to make it denser and heavier and stronger and warmer, and, and, but still be thinner. And we're going we're to make the greatest sweater ever, right? Jeff Bezos goes all in on sweaters. Does that change the culture? Well, not initially, because the people who were hired were hired for this idea, right? If you were all about, uh, what's a good one? The uh, um, 
disagree but commit, right? That's one of my favorites. Um, given I love to argue, what? Shocking. Uh, given that I love to argue, I love disagree and commit, where we can say, look, we can have difference of opinions, but a decision is going to be made and we'll move forward. And the person who disagrees isn't going to be a total jerk about it and drag their heels and, you know, effectively kind of sabotage the project or initiative from the inside purely for the ability to say, I told you so. No, but they say, look, I disagree, but. I will commit and, and do everything I can to make this thing a, a success. They do amazing work that way. They kind of get around the stupid stuff that slows other companies down, right? The, the infighting, the politics, the, uh, um, the jockeying for position, the jockeying for glory, right? This isn't about that. They're not all about that. They're about, look, we're here for the answer, and the answer is what we serve, and therefore we are focused on disagree and commit. Now they have to disagree and commit on sweaters. So that's a very easy switch to make. You can talk about, okay, what's the best kind of thread? Okay, what's the longest kind of weave we need? Or I don't know anything about sweaters. Uh, but they're going to have fights. You're going to have conversations. And what happens if we move from cashmere to merino? And I don't know. You're now way beyond my knowledge of sweaters. Um, but you're going to have fights. You're going to have disagreements. But the culture remains. Now, let's say instead of saying we want sweaters, Jeff says, okay, everybody, you have to work from home. How much of that culture can remain. Now in Jeff's case, because of Amazon's deeply embedded and codified culture, a lot of it will stay the same. You can still disagree and commit remotely. That's fine. But there might be some things that don't quite translate as well. Or, and this is where things get very complicated, you hire someone and you say, here's our leadership principles, but the, the, the new hire doesn't realize how much everybody really believes these things. And they might go, yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's the, the poster on the wall. Got it. I'm going to do it my way. That person's in trouble. And in fact, Amazon may realize or may be exposed to new ideas that defy these leadership principles. And some, at some point, they may say, hey, hang on a minute. We might have missed one, or we might have been off base on one of these, or maybe we need to reframe some of these so that they apply certain cases, but there's an opportunity in this other new leadership principle that this other person has injected into us, right? There are changes. There's opportunities. Culture shifts, and, and it's, it's impossible to put your hands on it and say, this is what it is, because you can say, this is what it is today, and only if you've really reinforced it. And I'm going to be honest with you. The reason why I'm able to reference Amazon leadership principles is because they're pretty famous for it, and I can't think of many other companies who are that good at it. Every company says they have principles. I have been in, you know, over the years, I've seen companies say they have principles. I've been to interviews where someone put a little, uh, uh, one of those plexiglass cards on the table and slotted their values or, you know, principles in it in the hopes that it will, you know, reinforce it, but everybody ignores it. No one pays attention to it or whatever. I've seen people kind of think they're doing it and just absolutely not. And that's always the fun part about those, some of those companies that are just really good at certain things. They're really good at establishing those principles and reinforcing it and living them every single day and committing to them, even though it hurts sometimes, even though they may decide, I'd love to hire you, but you're not great on the principles and therefore long-term, you're not gonna be a great fit for how we do things and therefore I'm gonna have to not hire you. And that may be a short-term pain, but it's a long-term success. Very few companies have the guts to kind of make those kinds of calls. Amazon does. A couple of other do, but there's an example. So what happens when you do have to work from home? What happens when this kind of black swan event shows up and kind of tilts the table over and says, okay, everybody, now you have to take your laptops and go home. 
How does culture fare? Well, again, if you're going back to there's a really interesting article, I think in The Verge, about how uh, if your culture is all about perks and you think about the valley, and you know one thing that is true about the Bay Area and the, cult, the tech culture in the Bay Area is that they all think lunch comes with work. <laughs> they all think if I, get a, if I take a job, lunch is free. Someone will provide me lunch. Now, is that Google's fault? Is that Facebook's fault? Is that, I don't know whose fault that is. I don't know who started that and made that a thing, but it is absolutely a thing. And having once worked for a company that had an office in the Valley and it was the only office that offered free lunch and the rest of the company looked at it and went, why did they get free lunch and we get Jack? And it was because, well, that's the culture of the Bay Area. And there's that word again. Um, and what happens is, is you have thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of developers, project managers, and product managers, and admins, and all sorts of people who fill the cubicles and offices of your standard mega coding house, right? All of them now have to go home. And what happens on the first day of lockdown at about 11.30 when they all open Grubhub or Seamless or Uber Eats or DoorDash or whatever the hell you're using for, hey, bring me lunch. Because, by the way, Facebook says, said, hey, um, we're going to cover your perks while you're at home. Facebook, who has tens of thousands of employees in the Valley, said, sent them all home, and they all opened DoorDash and Uber Eats and, 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 and all these other apps pretty much at the same time looking for lunch. Like every restaurant in that Valley went, what the hell just happened? Think how insane that is. And it's not just Facebook. A lot of these companies, even the ones that didn't say we will cover the cost of lunch, they had people who were just like, I'm hungry and I don't have any food at my house. So I guess I'm just going to go and go to DoorDash or go to Uber Eats or go to wherever. You know, I'm just going to go do the Grubhub thing. They got overwhelmed that first week. And that's one of the interesting things about the pandemic is how it's shifting our resources from a workspace to a home as workspace. And suddenly, um, you know, one of the reasons why our toilet paper is a problem is because we're using twice as much toilet paper at home and no toilet paper from the, from the commercial side, and that's skewing up supply lines left, right, and center. Yeah, there's a little bit of hoarding going on, but the way the supply lines are structured says there's a expected amount of toilet paper being used at home, and suddenly one day we all went, nope, we don't, do, we don't buy commercial anymore because we all have to, work, we have to work at home. And therefore, we're going to the bathroom at home, and therefore we need home bathroom toilet paper which almost doubles the need, doubles the demand for it, and without any change or uh, of supply. And let's be fair, those supply lines are very inflexible, so it's very hard to meet new demand. Thus, shortages. Right? The whole world kind of went upside down. How does your culture react to it? Again, if it's all about perks, your culture just went out the window. Everything you think you know about your culture just went away. You're, you know, your culture is all about beer Fridays. Everybody's going to get their own beer. Sorry, everybody's just going to have to be fend for themselves. Your culture is collaboration, but your idea of collaboration was showing up in office and hanging out for two hours with a big whiteboard and uh, big markers and figuring out, well, that went away. Yeah, you can collaborate virtually, but it's a lot of a different, it's a very different process. <laughs> it is the difference between dancing and reading about dancing, right? It is very very difficult to do strong collaboration virtually. And yeah, I know, there are plenty of tools that say they do it, and I don't, I'm not a big believer in tools as a supplier of strategy, as a supplier of skill. Tools are just as, are only as good as the people who use them. Sorry, it's true. The hammer does not make the carpenter. I'm just gonna say that. Just putting that out there. I believe that wholeheartedly. Anyway, so if your culture is perks, 
you pretty much just had a blank sheet of paper handed to you and say, you have to reinvent your culture. And of course, what is it based on? If the idea is three people in a room and there's no more room, yikes, you know, what do you do? What do you do? But if your culture is truly deeper than that, and I don't mean values, but I mean about the how. And I think that's where things get, I think that's where we have to truly understand what a culture is. You do things, right? Facebook makes code. They make ads. They build a platform. They support the platform. They give away your data. They do, they do things. How they do things is what their culture is about. How they do it, they move fast and break things. And that means occasionally giving away way too much data to people who are going to abuse it. And a couple years later, we decide that that's wrong. That's just their culture. We're going to move fast and break things. I don't think that anybody on Facebook was nefarious in the uh, Cambridge Analytics and said, ha ha, I'm going to screw with the elections. I can't wait. What they said was, cool, more ad sales. Done. Right? You're, they're incentive to give that data away. Their culture says, don't worry about things like, well, did, are, are we allowed to give that data away? Do we have rules that say it's okay? If it's move fast and break things, one of the things you might break is the law. Oops. That's just the culture of one company. What if your culture is very much about we support each other, we help each other, we work as a team, right? And I've seen those cultures and they're very, very few and far between in terms of doing really, really well. I know a lot of companies say they do it really well. They don't. Um, they, they're, <laughs> it's just that there's, a, there's really poor yardsticks for doing that well. But when you do it well, it's amazing. But now here we're trying to support each other, but now we're at home. Now, if I can see that someone's having problems out of the corner of my eye because we're in a big open space, no longer is an open space. I have to wait for that person to raise their hand or show up on Teams or Slack and say, hey, I'm having a problem. I need help. And let's be fair. One of the hardest things to do is to ask for help, especially in a digital format where you have to know that that shit's being recorded. You don't want it on your file that you couldn't hack it for fear that, and let's be fair, the economic situation being what it is, you do not want to put yourself in a position to be seen as the weak link in any given company, lest you be shown the door, right? So consequently, the culture will shift. It has to shift. It has to evolve. What the culture is is the how those people do the thing. How do they solve the problem? How do they put the product out? How do they answer the customer service calls? How do they support each other? How do they compete with each other? How, 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 how do they do it? Which leads to the next question, or I guess the last question in this process is, if that's true, and I'd like to believe it is, I, don't, I, I didn't make any of this stuff up. I'm not inventing you know, the concept of culture from whole cloth. <laughs> I'm stealing liberally from any number of people and ideas, right? Please, no one, no one is as tall as, the, as someone standing on the shoulders of giants. Trust me, we are all standing on the shoulders of everybody from Aristotle to Seth Godin. I get that. So this ain't me. I didn't invent this. But that said, if that's true, if culture is that thing, how, and this is where you should be paying most crucial attention, how do you communicate that thing? I think I've made this joke before, and it's not really a joke so much. It is a hilarious thing that is 100% true. When I was doing an audit for a company about a year ago, yeah, a little more a year ago, um, they were, I was doing a competitive audit, and they had listed companies in their sector and in their geographic space that say, these are our competitors, and we want to understand what their employer brand positioning and strength is. And I went and evaluated one of these companies, and I will not say who it is, um, and I swear to God, I swear to all that is holy and is an employer brand, or I swear on my glass door score. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what, what's the Bible version of, what's the, what's the Bible to employer brand, right? What is the thing that is holy? I don't know. Um, and it's not glass door scores. I'm kidding, folks. 
uh, I swear, you could distill their employer brand too. We're a startup and we have cold brew. <laughs> I swear. I kept looking for more. I goes, look, we're a startup. Oh, and there's cold brew. You're like, oh my God. Here's a video of them winning startup of the award and going back and, and, and drinking cold brew. It's like, <laughs> What? How? How is this a thing? And that's, you know, hey, that's what it is. When you don't understand what employer brand is, you just say that's our employer brand. It's like, no, that's called a perk. <laughs> that's called a legal description, a perk, and actually not even a legal description. Being a startup, anybody can be considered a startup. Whatever. So how do you describe and showcase and try to uh, illustrate when it comes to culture to a candidate, right? That's what we should be focused on. If we understand our culture, and that's a big if, let's be fair. If we understand our culture, how do we say it to someone? How do we tell a complete stranger, our culture is all about blank, without one, sounding like complete and total bullshit used car salesman artists, or two, saying something meaningful. And that is where we go back, way back, to the secret weapon of just telling a good story. And I don't mean once upon a time, there was a fish named Nemo, and he didn't, his father was overprotective. And one day, he got sucked into blah, and his father had to chase him. You know, you've, you've seen the Pixar model of, of a template for how to write a story. Great, great model. Lots of different ways to tell a story. When I say telling a story about your culture, I mean tell, giving me an example. And I know I've talked about this idea of examples, as not just showing where to plant the flag, but also showing how far the edges are. That's super useful. I want to kind of revisit this for one more moment because I think it's crucial. I think we, you know, it's, it, it takes a while for most people to go, I get that, I get that, I get that. So, uh, you know, normally I use the Nordstrom example. I'm not gonna. Nordstrom is a great one. If you don't know it, it's simply that they uh, took a customer service representative who'd been told Nordstrom has the best customer service care anywhere, literally took a refund on a product that the company never sold. Not didn't sell that person, but never has sold. Didn't have the skew in their in their catalog, and still made the return. Made uh, didn't make an exchange, obviously, but gave them credit for something else. And that story says, this is how much we care about customer service. We are willing to go to the insane, the lunatic fringe of what customer service means. We will take back returns from things we do not even sell, and we may not have even thought of selling. We may never ever sell, but we will take it. And I, I have lots of questions like, what did you do with that item? <laughs> Is it in a lost and found somewhere? What do you do? It's like, do you put it on the shelf and stick a sticker on it and say it's 12 bucks or whatever this thing was? What do you do? I have many questions. I'm sure that, that information is available freely against a Google search, and I have just simply chosen to not do that. Anyway, the story talks about your culture. If your culture is all about perks, if it's all about beer pong, if it's all about foosball table, what are you going to say? We have the best foosball table. I was talking to Madison last week, and we, she was telling me a story about how um, she was working at a company, she didn't name which one, and she was interviewing someone, and he, they, she said, why do you want to work here? And the candidate says, well, you have my favorite brand of coffee. And <laughs> Madison was like, you know you can buy that at a store, right? That cannot be a reason for showing up. And I think that is a great example of how perk-driven culture is a lie. It is a failure. It is paint anybody can paint on any wall. It is not specific, unique, or differentiating about you. Lord knows it is not specific. So you need to tell a story about what your culture is. So let's say your culture 
is about having fun. Okay, we all know where I used to work, the old big G, uh, the, the coupon shack, as it were, going through some trouble. But it, the, you know, at the time, uh, before I got there, it was known as having a super casual tone, super tongue-in-cheek tone, great writers, great creative. And they were very good at making things, even the most banal, boring, bullshitty things, sound interesting and fun. They had all sorts of stories, they, and their favorite was the banana bunker. And for those of you, and I swear to you, this is a 100% true story backed up by evidence that anyone can Google. If you just Google banana bunker, you'll see what I mean. It is literally a plastic thing. It's kind of articulated like a bendy straw so that you can bend this thing. It's a case. It's got a pointing on both ends, kind of tubular with a bendy part in the middle. And it is a thing that's made of plastic, rigid plastic, that you put your banana in. So that when you put your banana, now encased in a banana bunker, in your bag, the banana won't get crushed. Because let's be fair, no one wants to eat a banana that's crushed. And everybody knows the banana is super healthy. This podcast has been not sponsored by the banana lobby. Anyway, everybody likes bananas. Everybody wants a banana. Everybody knows the banana in a bag is a bad idea. A banana in a bag is a bad idea. Wow. That literally just fell out of my mouth. I don't understand. Life is weird. Um, but, but... But, and, and, and Connor, if you're listening, distract yourself for a moment. It definitely looks like the sort of item one might find in an intimate boutique. How about that? How, how do I dance around that? It definitely looks like that. Uh, you, just a quick glance, man, you know, if someone was looking at it at work, you would totally go, oh, you can't look at that at work. And then you'd be like, oh, it's a banana bunker. And they did amazing work dancing around what it looked like and what it did. They had so much fun dancing around the line of improprietary, occasionally probably cutting real close, maybe even absolutely stepping over that line, but they rocked it. This is the dumbest $10, $12 piece of plastic product in the world. Maybe not dumb. Actually, for some people, I'm sure it was super useful, super valuable, but let's be fair, not exactly what you'd call life-changing. And it was just hilarious. And that is their culture. Their culture at the time was very much about we can poke fun, we can dance that line, we are so good at writing and, and creating narratives and stories and ideas and illustrating and evoking feelings and thoughts around. Because let's be fair, marketing is a kind of mind control, making you think that a product is X or Y, making you think that the Volvo is safe, whether it is or not. How would I know? I don't own one. I've never crashed one. Making you think that the Ferrari uh, gets you attraction from the, other, from the opposite sex. How would I know? Never owned one, never driven one, and no one's ever stared at me in one. These are all claims that marketers make, and we all go, oh, okay, that's, that sounds fair. That was their culture, this idea they can make anything interesting. It was amazing culture, and it was fantastic up until it wasn't. And here's the second story, 100% true. I don't know that it's completely backed up by uh, documentation, but I know at least a couple hundred people who were there and who would back it up. Uh, and this was many years later when they were trying to re-spark. So after, over time, the banana bunker story was told, was told in interviews. It was a great story at illustrating the kind of craft and kind of pride they took in their craft in, in being creative. That was the culture. Their creative culture was in Chicago, bar none, par excellence, just absolutely epic at the time. You're talking 2010, 2011, maybe even 2012. Over time, they get bigger, they buy companies, they extend their product lines, they do all sorts of stuff, and that feeling, that culture of creativity starts to evolve, starts to change, and frankly, it got fairly tepid. It got a lot less 
interesting, a lot less cool, a lot less uh, um, poking fun. The concept of improprietary, were, or improprietary, improprietary? That's wrong. Uh, simply this idea that they were never going to be the cool writers anymore, for better or for worse. I'm not making any judgments here. That's just, but the, the I mean, hey, let's be fair. Companies evolve, they get older, they get more conservative. And there was a spirit, a thought, that we can re-spark that feeling of let's push some boundaries, let's be edgy and fun and cool and all that good stuff. And what they did is one holiday, it was of Halloween, they hired about 10 actors. This is in the Chicago office. They hired 10 uh, actors a couple years ago to dress up as various zombies, um, demons and monsters. There was one girl who was from The Ring, right? Who with the, the long string of hair in front with the, 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 the nightgown that was all in shambles. Uh, and they, and, they, and they, let's be fair, these people were probably dancers, professional dancers. They were so good at nailing the physical performance of what they were doing. You know, the creepy clown, the, you know, whatever that thing was. And they were, they wandered the office in a pack and no one said, hey, there's this thing. The leadership has said, let's spark this feeling and let's bring back that crazy edgy thing. And they had totally missed the boat. They totally missed the culture. They totally misread what people were there to do and how they did it and why they did it. This is a company that was far more professional, far more uh, adult, if you were, not in a kind of crazy kind of way, but more in a let's put on a shirt and tie kind of way, right? It was very much a, I'm going to pay my 401k adult, you know, <laughs> right? And suddenly they got this injection of what they thought was cool and fun and scared the bejesus out of people. I know, and I know for a fact, one of my friends worked on one of the other uh, uh, companies in that building on a different floor that when the, she said, when the elevator opened and the chick from the ring is standing there just glaring at you, it's a moment it's really a thing. And there were a lot of complaints. In fact, one person actually crossed a line and physically came in contact with another person who had a history of being abused and consequently kind of freaked out appropriately so. And it was just a complete misread of the culture. And this is what happens when you don't understand what the culture is or what the culture is today. It's very easy to misread. It's very easy to say, oh, we're this thing. Why? Well, because we said we were eight years ago, 10 years ago. Well, are we today? I don't know. No one's told us who we are. And that's when culture misfires happen. And that was a very, very long story. But the truth is that shows you how far they can take it. The concept of the banana bunker showed you. We'll take that sense of creativity and fun and playfulness and a little bit of snark and a little bit of, of uh, cool kid kind of uh, uh, mojo to it. And we'll push the boundaries really hard. We'll push them as far as we can. And that showed the edge to which they could take stuff. And then trying to reapply it back down the road shows how much they had changed and how quickly they had changed unbeknownst to them. That to me is the magic of culture as it shifts, it evolves, it changes. And as, as we are being faced with these unimaginable waves of change, uh, we're in the you know, VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, you know, look it up. Um, this is where we are. Culture is going to be the thing that changes slowest, but it is such an important change. It is going to be a thing that will bite you in the rumpus because it changes behind you and you don't realize it. Here you are taking the culture from a year ago and still trying to find new ways of projecting it, not realizing the culture has changed. When everybody is suddenly freaked out that their job might not be there next week, when everybody's going crazy because their kid's making them nuts and they're cooped up and getting stir crazy, 
Yes, they're still working. Yes, they're still doing the things, the thing they're supposed to do, but the way they do it has changed. Thus, changing the culture, you have to take that into account. And if you try to reapply what used to work to what now is, you're screwed. You aren't going to miss the boat completely and have a bad day. All right, there's a lot of talk about culture. I do enjoy talking about it. So hopefully you got something out of that. As per always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, as always, for sharing. I appreciate that. Um, Just let me know if there's anything you want me to talk about. I'd love to hear about it. I'm all ears. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. This has been an episode of The Talent Cast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you'd like to get in touch with me, a couple of ways to do that. Obviously, there's Twitter, at The War for Talent. You can go to the podcast website at thetalentcast.com. If you'd like to stay up to date on the news of this industry and what's going on, just go to employerbrand.news and sign up for the email newsletter with lots of news and links to other places. If you just want to connect with me on LinkedIn and just say hello or let's just talk, that's linkedin.com slash in slash The War for Talent. Or I bet if you just search for James Ellis, I pop up pretty quick. Otherwise, if you have any questions, concerns, considerations, ideas for podcasts, holler at me. Let me know what's going on. Thank you if you've shared it. Please share if you haven't. Rate us, review us. I love all that stuff. It really does help kind of keep the message going and get the message out there. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.